Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jacob Doherty, the host for this episode. Today we're do- talking to Dolly Kikon, Senior Lecturer in Anthropology and Development Studies at the University of Melbourne, and author of Living with Oil and Coal, Resource Politics and Militarization in Northeast India, published in 2019 by the University of Washington Press. The book's a rich account of life in the midst of a landscape defined by multiple overlapping extractive industries and plantation economies and of the social relations through which a resource frontier comes into being. So, Dali Kikon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Before we delve into the book, could you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to this topic? Um, so I studied law, and I had no idea how I got into anthropology. Um, but it was really my legal practice in India during the um, early 2000s, where I was really involved with the human rights movement um, that got me interested into anthropology. So when I came to Stanford, I think social anthropology and the theories that I was studying um, made me very curious about the intersections of human rights, uh, militarization, and it was really a very violent encounter where I write, which I write about in my uh, introduction that made me look at militarization and resource politics. And that had to do with a dear friend of mine who was actually initially introduced to me as, you know, my field informant uh, in SM. So in 2007, eight, around the time when I started my um, pilot study as a grad student, he was uh, murdered along the foothills. And that was the first time I began to see the connections between resource extraction, militarization, which I I will really confess was something very new to me as a human rights uh, activist and also from law. I really saw the court systems and, you know, in in a sense, the extrajudicial killing that were taking place in the northeastern region of India as the key factor. But the killing of Nilikesh Gogoi became a very transformative moment for me, not only as an anthropologist, but also as somebody very, very concerned with what was going on in terms of violence and the extractive landscape. So can we maybe talk a bit about the context for the study to get situated in northeast India? Maybe um, in light of some of the recent the recent publication of the Assam National Register of Citizens and the construction of a massive network of detention centers in the region. Can you tell me a bit about the role migration has played and how citizenship has been defined there over time? That is a very, I think, large issue. And I'm sure a lot of very qualified scholars will be able to address this. And um, yet the issue of citizenship is very, very deeply complex and complicated. And I think that is linked uh, to a colonial history of 
frontier politics of resource politics. So if you look at the region as such, in terms of the borders being extremely porous, uh, in terms of, I think, mobility being very, very high in this part of the world, um, you know, what was a real thing? And I would say that there's nothing wrong in human societies, in human beings being mobile, migrating. That's been a central part of our human history. But I think in the transitional, transitional period, in the period of the, the decolonization, I would definitely say that the issue of citizenship then starts first for me in the hills, right? like the Naga Hills. And all mm -hmm. those around where we were looking at issues of sovereignty, we were looking at um, the right to self-determination movements. So from there on, the issue of citizenship, like you said, till today, the NRC, and I'm telling you, Jacob, on record, there are much more qualified people who can talk about this right now. Because I think the new, um, what do you call, the new list came out on the 31st of August. Um, and yet, I think at the heart of it is how do we talk about citizenship? How do we talk about rights? How do we talk about people and the miserable uh, conditions of statelessness that they are experiencing? I remember when I was in grad school um, reading this amazing article written by the Dutch historian Willem van Schandel uh, titled Stateless in South Asia. And so when we talk about statelessness in this part of the world, it's been an ongoing thing. And today, there is actually, in South Asia, no extradition policy between Bangladesh and India. And so in a sense, in terms of the NRC and the government of India pushing away foreigners or, or in a sense, uh, doubtful citizens becomes a very big issue of where will they go. So I think... Um, this is a larger issue of citizenship, but in my own work, coming back to my work, Jacob, I am talking about, I think, extraction and, in a sense, the, the, the encounter, the encounter with people, inhabitants who were here, particularly in the hills and in the uh, foothills of the Brahmaputra Valley. So perhaps you could describe a bit the landscapes that we're talking about and why the foothills in particular are such a rich site of social exchange and conflict. The, the foothills are such a fascinating place. And let me tell you that during my grad school, I had the most challenging time explaining it to my committee. It was not only about this region that I was there explaining it to them. They had no idea my committee where Northeast India was. And they would keep on telling me, so what is this place that you want to study? And as though that wasn't difficult enough, Jacob, I went on to study a landscape where people were just scratching their heads and they were saying, hang on, it's not making sense to us, right? And, and I also started studying this, the landscape of the foothills during a time in grad school, let me say, where I guess cities was quite a trend. You see what I'm saying? So when, when, my, when my peers were saying, oh, I'm studying New York or London or, you know, like Bombay and Delhi. Here I was, Jacob, talking about an amorphous, quote-unquote, landscape called the foothills. But the more I tried, in a sense, to understand this myself, what really helped me was um, geology. Fi uh, initially, geology, in a sense, of understanding where oil and coal was trapped underneath. And at the same time, uh, the, the social geography above where 
many different ethnic communities were living on the surface and mm-hmm. exchanging ideas, you know, getting into alliances like marriages, like trade, and and getting about you know, in the midst of conflict and in the midst of violence. So I came up in a sense uh, with two frameworks to explain what the futile was. One was the horizontal way of understanding it, the elevations, right? The border making, which was really a colonial project. And I'll come back to that, hang on. And uh, the, the police check gate. So that was a horizontal way of understanding the foothills and the verticality of the landscape as well. Because if you follow the geographical and the geological landscape of the foothills that I study in Northeast India, it's part of the larger um, Assam Arakan oil belt. And that is part of the Eastern Himalayas. So in a sense, if you look where oil and coal are trapped in this landscape, it is really you know, at the foothills, along the foothills, because that's where the valley, that's where the plains are pushing across the mountains. So in a sense, as I understood those verticality and the horizontal way of figuring out the foothills, one thing that became very clear to me, among other things, and became a dominant uh, framework for me to understand was first the colonial project in the foothills. And it started with the tea plantations and also with the oil, the discovery of oil and coal around, around that belt. And with the discovery of um, petroleum and the expansion of the tea plantations, a central thing happened in demarcating the foothills, which became in a way of defining what was the plains and what was the hills. And the first thing was actually the commodity, tea as such. The second thing was the railway tracks. So even today, I think there's a chapter on huts that I talk about, but even today, if you go along the foothills, you see and you look at the map, it's the railway track in a sense, which was built not for people, as you know, but for the transportation of commodities. So in a sense, I think the foothills really came alive through this colonial project of the plantations, of extraction, of uh, building infrastructure. In the post-colonial era, after 1947, when India became independent, with the number of self-determination movements that came up from the region, the first thing that happened was the militarization of the entire landscape. And the militarization of the entire landscape, in a way, followed the colonial project of the hills uh, as the area, the, 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 the domain where the savages lived, the primitive people lived. And in a sense, the Brahmaputra Valley, where extraction, no matter what, under whatever circumstances, would go on. And that would be taken out of the region for the greater national interest. So in a sense, in post-colonial India then, it became an enclave economy, and at the same time, the militarization was just very, very heightened. The third point that I'll add here is that, Jacob, the foothills became an extremely fascinating landscape for me as an anthropologist, because it was here where notions of purity and identity were really heightened. And by that I mean that if you're a Naga, if you're a tribal from the hills of Nagaland and you come to the foothills, you had to assert your Naganess in the most in the most exceptional ways, right? Whether it was through your aggressive 
uh, ways of dealing with people, whether it was in a way and imposing a really, really heightened notion of nationalism. And in the same way, the people who came from a Brahmaputra valley to the foothills would also, I think, stick to their ground and display and perform a kind of identity, which was really a valley identity. So in a sense, it was really in the foothills which became a, uh, what do you call it? It was kind of a prism, right? It became a, a, a prism of understanding what the hills and the valley meant in the region. And so in the first chapter, you explore the ways that this layered landscape and layered histories in the region give rise to multiple meanings for different actors. So how do you see storytelling and placemaking in this context? And what's their role in the conflict that we see in villages over land and resources? That, that's a very fascinating question, because if we um, think about storytelling in this landscape, it is really central, because for many, many communities in the region, they follow uh, an, an, oral, um, an oral history. So except for, let's say, in the areas where I was working, for the homes and also for some of the uh, other ethnic communities who had small kingdoms, um, for majority of the villages around, it is true orality that they make sense of the, 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 the landscape they inhabit. So in a sense, one of the ways in which I found um, storytelling fascinating was that how stories, in a sense, I think helped me to understand both the everyday lives of the people and at the same time how they were in a in a way, I think going back to history, but making it alive for them. And and I say this because people are not often innocent, right? When they're telling stories. And so in one of my chapters, I think titled Difficult Loves, I have a I have a subsection there titled um, Pure Histories uh, in Pure Memories, in a sense where there is a figure called Dalimi. And Dalimi is supposed to be a Naga woman from the hills married to an Ahom king in the valley. So in a sense, that union, which is both really um, a legend and at the same time, you know, uh, a, a local lore around the foothills, is time and again um, invoked by the coal traders. And that's something that I found it extremely fascinating in a way to understand the power of storytelling and at the same time, the, uh, the, the politics, the politics of extraction. So that's the reason that I found storytelling both as a method and in a way as, as, as a process of understanding the everyday politics of the region. So you've just mentioned it there, but chapter two is difficult loves and you analyze the entanglement there of love and violence to show how ethno-nationalist imaginaries are differently mapped onto and policed on men's and women's bodies. Can you explain a bit about the central concept in this chapter, uh, Marom? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's and its role in the politics of ethnic nationalism that you've also mentioned, this idea about purity. So, mm. so how does Marom differently shape gendered lives in Assam and Nagaland? So I'll tell you this. So Marom is a Nagamese word. And Nagamese is a Creole that's spoken along the foothills of Assam and Nagaland. And it's, it's a language, it's a market language that came up in the 19th century between the traders from the Naga Hills and the Brahmaputra Valley. And in 
many ways I picked up Morong, and in uh, many ways also I picked up the language of Nagamis to do a large part of my fieldwork because in Nagaland and in Assam today, this language is actually uh, relegated to a lower status because it is defined as impure language. So many people would say that Nagamese today is a combination of, of seven or eight languages, dominant languages like Hindi, Maithili, Assamese, Bengali, English, you know, you put any. And so they would ridicule this language. So in a sense, I thought that why not pick this up and see where it goes. Morom is really a very, very, um, I think, um, a very, very porous term where speakers of Nagamis would use it. For instance, a, a, a sentence like, ituke morom lage, right, would mean that, would mean many things in terms of affection, in terms of love, in terms of life. I picked up Morum in a sense to analyze, I think, um, violence and gendered violence in the mining landscape. Because one of the things that's really frowned upon along the foothills that I found was inter-ethnic marriages. You don't, you don't enter into inter-ethnic marriages. And, and women, women, particularly tribal women who entered into inter-ethnic marriages with non-tribal men were more frowned upon in a sense, because it was really the women whose bodies were giving birth to impure children. And as I was along the foothills looking at the extractive landscape, I found that these narratives were actually overlapping with land relations, with ownership, with domestic violence, because that there was such a conversation, there was such an acceptance about impunity, and more so around women who were part of inter-ethnic families and marriages. So in a sense, I think my, my um, what do you call, desire to, to, to look, look, at, look at morom as a conceptual term, right, which is really not that very clear, clear link that you can get with English, and the idea of love itself, and that's something I think I explain in detail in the book, um, was actually to look at, once again, Jacob, the intersections of extraction, women's body, um, ethnic nationalism, because for ethnic nationalism as such, you know, Sharika's, Sharika Tiranagama's book would also tell you, um, her amazing work on Sri Lanka would tell you how in terms of nationalism and purity so much desired. And I was working on this as looking at different literature, I also found Lisa Malki's work really relevant in a sense, which I had read um, in grad school. So in a sense, I was thinking about it. I don't know if I'm making it clear to you, but you know, it was this intersection that became very, very important because for ethnic nationalism as such, in the region, Jacob, ethnic nationalism and ethnic nationalists actually demand a homeland, right? An ethnic homeland. And the homeland always has to be founded on the notion of purity. You can't have an impure homeland. And for that, the offsprings of born in those lands should be of pure blood. So in a sense, I think it was really, really interesting how all that was overlapping. And that seems very paradoxical in a place that, as you said, is so constituted by mobility over, over such a long time. 
But so maram was also an, an idiom that was used to articulate different relationships with the state and different experiences of the state. And so, so how does this language get used to critique and make sense of the processes of uneven development and the forms of rule and sovereignty that are present in Northeast India? That's an excellent uh, point that you raise because, as I as I say, you know, it was it was a region where we saw, you know, great large numbers of people being mobile, exchanges, trade. Um, one of the first things, and we have to go back to the colonial project, Jacob, because one of the first things that the colonial, the British colonial administration did was actually, in a way, to demarcate the region, right, um, into different revenue villages, into different areas where people, let's say, from the Naga Hills who were bringing cotton and who were bringing salt, were trading with the foothills, um, had to be stopped unless they started paying tax to the Britishers. That was the first division that came up to do with revenue and tax in the colonial era. In the post-colonial times, one of the uh, projects that the Indian state started in this region was the politics of majoritarianism. So for ethnic groups as such, here there was a lot of diversity and inter-ethnic alliances. One of the first things that the government of India did was what to actually press towards uh, communities who were asking for the right to self-determination at the time of decolonization to prove themselves as majority for any kind of guarantee, any kind of provision that they would require or, or in a way that would be fulfilled by the government of India. So in a sense, you can see where this was heading, right? And it's not only in this part of the world, Jacob. Once the state creates projects which pushes minorities who are already disadvantaged, who are already marginalized, who are already actually fighting in a way to make sense of what's happening in, on the ground, once the state pushes them and challenges them that unless an ethnic group Prove the majority, there's no way you're going to get any part of the cake. It leads to some of the most violent, violent um, conflicts and wars. And in a sense, that's what's happened along the foothills as well. The foothills then, Jacob, becomes a microcosm of really the tragic politics that we see in the region today. In terms, of, in terms of solidarity, in terms of alliances, the moment that you want any kind of development, quote-unquote, any kind of infrastructure, any kind of basic citizenship rights, like a health clinic, Jacob, like a public school, where do you go? You go to New Delhi. You go to New Delhi with a number begging that, listen, we have this many people in this province. We have that many people in this village. Give us a public school. So in a sense, look at the distance between the region and Delhi and look at people who fly in and fly out. I think it leads us to a larger conversation about exactly enclave economy, about frontier economy, and here many, many ethnic communities who are extremely already vulnerable, fighting and scrambling for a sense of identity not an Indian identity as such, but really for an identity, every identity, where in a sense they would live together in harmony. Because with all the ethnic conflicts that's taken place, Jacob, in this region, 
since the 90s. And there's been excellent, I think, um, literature around. You have to realize that they have nowhere to go, right? So after any ethnic conflict, after any ethnic cleansing, these communities have to come together and to reconcile. Check any record, whether the government of India in this region or in Kashmir or any part of India has ever, ever started a reconciliation movement. The government of India has not. So for that reason, if you're looking at, Jacob, a place like the foothills, it tells us about the tragedy of the region. It tells us about the zeal and the survival skills. And at the same time, both the, 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 the extreme human sense of bringing violence and you know, trying to extend solidarity. So it's very, very mixed. And it's very, I think, um, complex and I would say deep at the same time, that entire landscape and what it tells us about the region. One of the, the key places where that kind of tension between conflict, but also the desire to live peacefully and to exchange comes through most clearly is what, the way you talk about um, huts, which are weekly markets, but, but kind of more than that. So these are scattered across the foothills and function as zones of interaction that connect people across, um, sorry, these are your words, they're scattered across the foothills, they function as zones of social interaction mediated through networks of power and alliance founded on extractive activities. So can you describe these spaces of these huts and what are the activities that take place there? How do some of the tensions and conflicts become manifest in these places? The huts are fascinating. So, my, so I'll tell you this. My entire PhD was supposed to be about the huts. I'm telling you. I went to the field, to the huts, and that was, that, that was going to be the entire PhD. It became a chapter in, you know, in the entire project. And I'll tell you why I was fascinated with the huts. The huts, Jacob, work as a, they, they function as a social thermometer of the landscape. Right? So in a sense, where, where there, when there are, there are alliances, when, when ethnic communities are rejoicing and celebrating one another, you can actually sense that inside the weekly huts. They can't dress, you know, they're greeting one another, they're happy, um, and, you know, they're teasing going on, um, the music playing. The moment any kind of conflict takes place, mainly around land and extraction, the huts shut down. Right? There, there are no activities. Um, I write about one of the huts which had been shut down for five years, Jacob, and the both parties, the Nagas and the Ahoms who would come to the huts for five years had been in a process of reconciliation and you know, in a process of dialogue. So in a sense, you can see that in the absence right, of the state being a proactive uh, entity bringing reconciliation, how these huts and how people, in a way, negotiate themselves to bring, um, you know, peace and harmony. Uh, the second thing that I want to tell you about these huts is that, you know, when times are good, the huts are spread, right? The huts are there. But it is also in times of conflict that you see new huts coming up. And so all along the foothills, if you go to any of the stories, any of the histories about how new huts came up in a particular village or, you know, beside an oil, oil field or outside a coal mining area, they would always say this. Oh, many years ago or some years ago when there was a conflict and the huts had shut down in the area, we had nothing to eat. 
And then what happened was that some traders in the middle of the night or early in the morning would take the path along the forest and come and hide near the paddy field or maybe beside a plantation and try to sell some chicken, try to sell some vegetable. And in a sense, those are the places then where people started gathering quietly in secret to buy food. So any time there would be a reconciliation, those huts, those traders would stay there. And that would be the beginning of new huts. So in a sense, you can see how fascinating these huts are. The third thing that I found out about the huts is that I also found how memories and how disgust and how resentment works in these places. So I began to see the huts not only as purely a place of economic exchange, right, of monetary exchange of transactions, but these were also the places where people were constantly sizing up one another. So for a lot of the tribal traders who would come to the huts in the foothills and would be selling their produce to the people in the valley from Assam. Jacob, they will not sell the delicacies they eat in their house. It would be, let's say, um, hmm. river snails, right? It would be dry fish or it would be, um, you know, uh, frogs from the streams. They wouldn't eat that because they know that their clients wouldn't buy that. They would bring food that the clients would buy and eat. So in a sense, the exchanges that were taking place were also really founded on secrets, not on exposing them, themselves and what their taste would be. So in a sense, I, I found all these stories that I began to discover extremely um, fascinating. What kinds of relations did the people that you would meet there have to the extractive industries around? Were they sort of workers on plantations? I know, for example, the oil industry historically doesn't have a huge labor force, um, despite the amount of capital that it produces. And so, so who are the kind of people in these in these places, and what was their relation to the overall extractive economies in the area? So there would be hierarchies, clearly. At the top would be the, the engineers. At the top would be the experts. And they would be from Russia. They would be from Canada. Uh, you know, they, they would be from France. And they would fly in and fly out. So this group of people wouldn't interact with anyone except the experts from, you know, and their counterparts from India in terms of exploring the region. And I never got to talk to any of them because there would be always security around them, even when they came to the huts. And I only saw them around the huts because they were very curious about them. And of course, they were, you know, white people and they were walking around. They would be walking around those areas with, with soldiers from the oil rigs. So in a sense, they would be at the top of the hierarchy. Uh, then you, you had the geologists who would go around very, very secretive in a sense, um, would not interact with the people outside the townships. The number of people that I started interacting were really the petty traders and also the contractors from the villages, right? Where they would see uh, the, 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 the oil rigs, and at the same time, the coal mines as spaces where they could go, maybe find some contract, do some work, and, and come back. But the conversation or the interaction between the experts and really the local people were almost at a very, very superficial, thin level, only relations that were uh, relations that connected them through the technical know-how. And pretty much that was that. 
And that's the reason why I talk, I think, in the introduction about really the, the militarized zone and how, in a sense, for the oil townships here in the region, they see the world outside the townships as an extremely dangerous place where they are not supposed to go out, where they are not supposed to interact. Jacob, I'll tell you that. You know, from the places that I've gone around in the country and around the world, I find a lot of amazingly educated people who would come up and tell me, listen, we grew up in Assam. Listen, we grew up in Nagaland. We grew up in Arunachal Pradesh. And the moment I would ask them where, they would say inside the army barrack or we were inside the oil townships. You ask them about the world outside. Maybe as adults, Jacob, they would come back as tourists and try to discover the world that they never saw when they were growing up. Because there are everything inside the oil townships, from schools to clubs to pools to shops, everything. You don't need to go out. All you need to do is sit in a car, come out of the township and go to the airport. Right. So in a sense, I think what I'm trying to say, Jacob, is I bring the conversation back to the idea and the notion of militarization and how deep that is. For the people living outside the township, Jacob, the townships and the, and the, and the side of the townships were actually the markers of not only colonialism, but also enclave economy and extraction. So in a sense, so it was really these two ways of viewing outside and inside that I was noticing. And, and I guess that's the reason that I... Um, I found it extremely, extremely interesting in a sense to, to see that. Yeah, I don't know when I'm um, answering that question that you asked, which was really good, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting the way that despite that kind of strong inside-outside distinction that you're describing, uh, so much of life outside of the township was nonetheless structured by the goings-on of the, of the carbon economy, essentially. Um, so then in Chapter 5, uh, which was called Extractive Relations. You illustrate the complex ways that sociality and temporality shape living with oil and coal. So how do the different extractive industries unfold over time and over the seasons? And what effect does this have on the relations between villagers, traders, agricultural laborers, and the companies who are there? Um, so unlike... So unlike oil, right, in a sense where, you know, exploration would take place, drilling would take place... Chapter 5 uh, focuses um, on, I think, predominantly on coal. And one of the uh, frameworks that I use to, 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 to talk about this, the, the, the seasons and the alliances and the relationships is actually through hospitality. Right? In a sense, you know, like, we know that oil, uh, we know that especially coal in this part of the world and, you know, like other parts of the world, it is artisanal mining. So in a sense, the, the seasons are very, very, um, they play a very important role in, in deciding when the mining season starts. From maybe, let's say, October, end October till the first pre-monsoon rains in the eastern Himalayas, which would be around April, uh, mining, coal mining takes place. And it's it's around the time that a lot of connections are made, but during the monsoon, which are really wet, heavy monsoon, no connections between the hills and the plains, especially in the mining villages. I use the framework of hospitality to understand this because, you know, 
at, I think, its core of being hospitable, of understanding hospitality is really taking care of, of nurturing, you know, of, of offering um, care at the same time. But in a sense, it was very, very, uh, it was very seasonal. And then in a, in a way, I began to wonder, is, was this exceptional in the foothills or how do we see notion of hospitality when it comes to trade and when it comes to economies? And, you know, I was thinking about, hang on, for any trade, Jacob, the, the foothills and this kind of relations is not, is not exceptional. Mm, I'll tell you this example. In the tea plantations across Assam, and you know, across the world, once you join the tea plantations, one of the things that you have to learn <laughs> is to play golf. Right? What has tea and golf got to do with it? Well, it's a maybe it's a you know it's it's a skill of refinement. By playing golf, you make all good deals. You know, you have to show that you know how to do it, and you don't talk about tea at all when you're entertaining big corporate companies who are coming to Assam, let's say, right, to buy tea or to look at tea. You entertain them first. Right? You take them for high dining, you take them to pl play golf, you take them for swimming, and business comes later. So in a sense, what I noticed in the foothills, and the more I thought about it, was not something that was exceptional. Um, and and, and so, so the other aspects that came through hospitality, hospitality I think I talked in Chapter 5, was also um, the theme of, what do you call it? adoption practices that was happening. And that was quite a dark side to the uh, extractive economy that took place. And Jacob, like you mentioned before, right, these are places where, there are where labor shortages always takes place between the hills and the valley. Mm. So in terms of addressing the labor shortage, what a lot of people who wouldn't have, uh, let's say, money as such in their hand, but would have land and plantation, and because these were seasonal um, this were seasonal trade, they would start adopting. They would start adopting kids, mainly Jacob, from the plantations, right? Adivasi kids, or let's say Nepali kids, and they would give them uh, ethnic names, and they would adopt them inside the houses, you know, make them part of the households, but in a sense, really make them work, really make them work really make them do the trade, uh, really put them in the field. So in a sense, it was a very, very exploitative form of, I think, using you know, kinship and using this kind of patronage. So you described the, the coal mining there as artisanal. So can you just paint a, a picture of what, what does that look like? Uh, what does a kind of mine look like? What, what does labor in that context look like? So artisanal mining, where these are like small, uh, small groups uh, maybe you know members of 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 villages mining together um nothing that is big scale but this is blurry right this is becoming blurry because if you i'll yeah. give you an example of a a Naga coal mine. And Jacob, remember, there's a huge, huge mining debate going on in the region when it comes to code unquote artisanal mining. The notion of yeah. artisanal mining, I think, that I'm using is founded on really the politics of ownership, tribal land ownership. And how is it? And who is it? You know, how is it? And who is actually uh, invoking the idea of representation and land rights? Hmm? So in a way, whether it mm -hmm. is, I'll name it, Arunachal Pradesh 
or Manipur, um, or of course Meghalaya, including the foothills of Assam and Meghalaya, uh, Arunachal Pradesh and entire Nagaland in the foothills wherever you find coal. There's a huge, huge um, racket of coal mining that's going on when, where villages and particularly rich tribal households take a piece of land, Jacob, and in a sense, they say that this is just a village doing it, but they begin to be, uh, bring big uh, excavators and at the same time, big companies from around India. So, so in particular, in certain villages where I was studying, there were artisanal mining, small time mining, starting from October till April, and it would finish, and they would use that money to send their kids to school. They would use their money to buy medicine. In other parts of the foothills, there were huge mining companies who had invested, and actually they were being very destructive because these are open cast minings, right? Artisanal mining, in a mm-hmm. sense, where you know you just use uh, manual labor uh, and predominantly. Uh, uh, basic implements and tools. In terms of labor, Jacob, coming to that other point that you raised, where does labor come from? Labor came actually from around the Naga villages. A lot of poor families would come and work in those mining, coal mining areas. The second uh, group of labor work came from the tea plantations. So in a sense, this is linked to the casual labor, the casualization of labor inside the tea plantations in Assam. So for a lot of the casual laborers along the foothills, uh, you know, where along the foothills, casual laborers inside the plantations would come up to the coal mines in the Naga, Naga areas and, and, and work there work there for really cheap for very less money. And there are a lot of reports, especially from Meghalaya, Jacob, if you look up, uh, you, you find about deaths in the mines, you find about you know people getting suffocated, uh, people getting stuck there. I think for the first time last year, the BBC covered yeah, coal miners who were trapped in Meghalaya for around two months or so, you know, the government couldn't do anything. So in a sense, these are not reported, but it is, you know, it is big news in terms of what happens in the mines. Um, the, the, the third, the last point, Jacob, that I have to mention in the coal mines, especially in Nagaland and in other places as well, is that a lot of former insurgents and a lot of land mafias also control those mines. So you can exactly see, once again, the intersections, the intersections of militarization the intersections of different uh, state and non-state actors who are actually involved in extraction. And I would say that we can't let this story slip away and say that, oh my God, this place is so chaotic. I always say that in this region that I work, Northeast India is a place where researchers come, they just scratch their head and and they say, I'm never going to come back to this region. Or when they work, Jacob, they stay here forever because it has layers. And I guess... um, the, the, the final point that I want to say regarding the extraction that I'm talking about right here is that with all the complexities and the violence, we can't forget, right? We can't forget the Indian state and we can't forget its role in violence and in how it has allowed uh, different actors, including non-state actors, Jacob, to perpetuate this and in a way to continue with this kind of managerial violent um, regulation in the region. 
And the kind of, Debroda, you mentioned that uh, insurgents control some of these mines and the kind of presence of insurgents and then the counterinsurgent apparatus is, ha, plays an important part in governing this space and, and the application or non-application of the rule of law, right? That, that's really excellent. I have to very, um, I think, quickly mention that um, political scientist Sanjeev Borowa wrote this piece and I would really encourage listeners to pick it up and read. If they haven't, it's called um, Governors as Generals. Right? And he was actually writing about this region and its history of militarization and how many of the governors, many of the heads of states who come, who are appointed by New Delhi to come to the region, Jacob, have either an intelligence or a security past. That's at the level of state governance. Mm. At the level of extraction and development that you're talking about, many, many uh, development projects like dams, Jacob, like roads, bridges, big national projects. If you look at it, the managers and the contractors and the ombudsmen who come in to work there have a military past. So they, so maybe they retire as colonels, as generals, and they take on those positions and they come. So look at the positions and look at the trajectories of how it happens. So in a sense, I think the 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 the, the, the what what do you call the the intersections and once again the you know the role of the Indian state is is and militarization is very very much I think um, tied uh, tied together. So. That's something that we can't do away with in understanding uh, this region. And also in terms of, I think, the insurgency that you mentioned, um, the, the first ceasefire, Jacob, let me mention, because we talk about insurgency and, you know, working in all these extractions, insurgent leaders are given contracts, and that's open secret, right? Yeah, insurgent leaders, when they go to New Delhi, stay in state guest houses, Jacob, they're given stipends. But why is it, we have to question, why is it that ceasefires uh, which started, ceasefire agreements which started in 1997 continue still today? And why is it that the government of India is not interested to settle those and instead perpetuate this kind of extractive violence that's going around? And I think that's something for us to think about. And it's not a big puzzle if we want to solve it. One of the things that I, that was really impressive about the book to me was the way you tack back and forth between these kind of large scale forces that are shaping the region and then the everyday lives and even the kind of everyday inner lives of the people who inhabit the land. Um, and so in chapter six, which is called Carbon Fantasies and Aspirations, you take us into what you call oil dreamland, the fantasies and desires about carbon futures that uh, living with oil and coal invoke. So maybe what... Let's talk a little bit about what some of the dreams that people in the Northeast have about extractive industries and how do they contrast with the harsh realities of life at the resource frontier? Um, so what, what are the dreams, right? What are the dreams for people in Northeast India when it comes to extractive and the extractive, um, you know, um, projects that they engage with? Really at the everyday level with the history of militarization that we have seen in the region, the there's an increasing uh, thing experience of landlessness, land alienation, Jacob displacement, both right in terms of like true uh, state projects 
and at the same time through corporate projects that's taking place. In the landscape that I worked in the foothills, the people that I spoke to in the villages lived in areas without electricity, without water, without a single health clinic. Jacob, forget about schools. One of the things that the laborers would do once they go to the coal mine and extract and earn some money would be to get their children out of there to the closest town, get them to stay in a hostel and study so that they could have a future. So in a sense, the kind of dreams and desires that I'm talking about, which might sound very provocative because I have been critiqued in a sense for putting a chapter like this out there, there's such good, how can I say, <laughs> um, you know, all good people today, right? You see what I'm saying? We should be going in, what, we, should, we, we should be going in for sustainability. We should be going in really, you know, to, to address the environmental crisis and climate change. Jacob, what's happening here that I find and in a very small way that I've been able to do, I feel, is maybe to disrupt that very, very clean narrative. Right? We can't talk about the, the, the crisis of maybe extraction, the environmental crisis there without addressing poverty, right? without addressing the people who are at the bottom selling coal in cages, in kilograms, hmm? uh, the, 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 the plantation workers selling their ration of tea in the huts so that they can buy food. Jacob, how do we address this? How do we address this big huge gap, right? Fantasy, true. Why poor people? Look at the rich. Look at the oil companies. They're still fantasizing and dreaming about profits. So in a sense, when we talk about fantasy, Jacob, this is a very dark fantasy and an aspiration that I'm writing about. And as I'm writing about, it's a very tragic and a sorrowful one, right? But in I think it's one that we see in a lot of resource frontiers and, and these kinds of sites of extraction that are always productive of such vast kinds of inequality, right? That's true. That's true. You're right. Yeah. So in terms of poverty, in terms of inequality, and one of the things that I really wanted to do, Jacob, is, you know, for me, the state is not something that's useless. Right? The state is something that's so important because I still believe that the state has to be part of the project of talking about equality, of, you know, basic rights, of sustainability. And that's the reason when I was talking about a landscape where the state is absent as a welfare state and present as a militaristic state, how do people make it? So that's the reason that I was talking about, I think, fantasies and about aspirations and about the oil dreamland. So then chapter seven is called Carbon Citizenship, and it takes us back to the theme of security and militarization that surrounds the oil industry in particular. And you're right that this security infrastructure constructs a particular kind of politics you call carbon citizenship that's violently exerted on the population. So could you describe a bit the architecture of security, some of the infrastructure of security, and how it becomes differently present in the lives of people living and moving around this region? So I'll tell you one thing. Um, when, when I talk about carbon citizenship, I talk about profiling, right? And I talk about profiling, not a, both of racial profiling, between between people who look non-Indian and, you know, the racial politics in India has been, I think, written about, has, has been out in the open. Um, and so that's a separate topic. But but in this, in this sense, in my chapter, I talk about a racial politics and also a militarized racial politics that's taking place at two registers. 
So in the foothills and along the foothills, Jacob, the, the traders, majority of the traders are Indians. And by that, I mean they come from far away places as far as Rajasthan, Gujarat, Bihar, Uttar Pradesh. Yeah? And they control major parts of the trade from uh, you know, selling tools and implements to selling rice, uh, daily groceries. During the time of militarization, both the ethnic communities and at the same time the traders were implicated in helping the insurgent movement. The, the retail shops, which were run by Marori communities, Jacob, supplied, garm, uh, supplied what do you call, cloth huh, to stitch insurgent uniforms. And some of the ethnic communities along the foothills then, because their, their kin groups were part of the insurgent movement, provided food. Right? provided shelter, like any insurgency movement that we see around the world in terms of communities being part of it. What the Indian military forces did when they started the counterinsurgency operations across the foothills, Jacob, was to actually make traders who came from other parts of India who looked like them, maybe shared same caste practices, maybe had same uh, kinship relations, they made these traders into maybe informers, maybe into their, you know, their suppliers. And they used them to monitor the movement of the ethnic communities. So that brought a big divide. So just to wrap up the conversation, we've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate and thank you for joining us. But before we let you go, could you tell us what project you're working on at the moment? Oh, thanks for asking me that. I just finished my second book. Uh, it's out. I'm very happy uh, with that. It, it was on my research uh, that I conducted after my PhD. Um, it's called Leaving the Land, uh, Effective Labor and Migration in India. And so it's by Cambridge University Press. I would really um, you know, be interested to see what the readers think about it, if they get a chance to pick it up and read. Uh, at the moment, I'm thinking about going back to my food projects. I have been very fa uh, fascinated about food in the region and, you know, the hot chapter, I think, showcases my interest on that. So interestingly, yeah, so food, uh, thinking about sustainability connected to climate change, and that's getting me to the world of microbes and fermentation. <laughs> so that's something that I'm very interested to look at that closely. Uh, we talk about development, we talk about, you know, big, big infrastructure, but I think the tiniest changes that's taking place is bringing the social sciences and the sciences to a fascinating, I think, uh, intersection, uh, whether it's in the world of pharmaceutical to, to do, you know, the superbugs and um, uh, to do with microbes. So that's where I'm heading, Jacob. Let's see where I get. <laughs> that sounds like a fascinating project. I can't wait to see, uh, see what you come up with. Well, Dolly, I want to thank you for joining us on New Books in Anthropology. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, Jacob. Thanks for having me on. I've really enjoyed having a chat with you and all the best for your podcast. And yeah, thanks. Good night. Thank you too.